I'm David Manilow and welcome to The Dining Table. The James Beard Awards are in this coming Monday night in Chicago and this weekend there are more than 40 food and restaurant events spread around the city. I'll talk to the president of the James Beard Foundation about some of the happenings around town as well as how they decide on the winners, the impact on Chicago, and how long the awards are going to be based in the city. By the way, if you want to attend any of these ticketed events, you can find them on the Choose Chicago and James Beard websites. Also, it's pop-up season. Crane's Ali Marathi reports on the Malibu Barbecue Cafe, a pop-up dining experience from Chicago-based Bucket Listers. It opens June 7th with the standard 1970s optimistic Barbie colors and a menu created by a master chef finalist. You know, the, the CEO and founder of Bucket Listers called it like a FOMO factor because it's only around for the summer. So if you're going to go, you got to go. That's all coming up next on The Dining Table. Joining me now is Chris Moon, president and COO at the James Beard Foundation. Chris, how's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So this is a super big week for uh, the James Beard Foundation and for Chicago. It's like one of my favorite weekends coming up, culminating in the award ceremony on Monday, June 5th. Give me some of the highlights as to what uh, what's going on this week in Chicago. Well, you're right. We have a really big weekend ahead of us. Uh, the annual James Beard Awards coming to town, um, our second home, Chicago. So we're excited to be headed your way in just a few days. It is a huge weekend for us. Uh, the James Beard Foundation puts on a handful of official events um, that are a part of the actual awards. And then the city just comes out in force, as you probably know. And so over the course of the weekend, starting on Friday night all the way through Monday, there are about 40 or so other programs or events taking place across the city. A crazy weekend of food and beverage um, in the best way possible. The official events kick off on Saturday. Uh, we host a number of what we call um, JBF sessions uh, that we do in partnership with Kendall College uh, at their campus downtown. There are two of those sessions on Saturday. Uh, one of them is at 1.30 and it's a session more focused for the industry on food access and sustainable communities. I mean, we've got a number of this year's nominees that will be in town that will be sitting on that panel, uh, as well as some local favorites like Rick Bayless and Maya Camille Broussard um, that will be a part of that conversation. And then a second session that afternoon, also at Kendall College, which is with the Abundant Setting, um, which is a conversation around who's watching the kids and this very important conversation in our industry around parenting, childcare, and the desire to obviously be able to have it all, um, which is something that we think we should be able to sort out. Yeah, and Beverly Kim started that organization. It's super important to her, yeah. Yeah, very, very important to her. And we've got some um, also really fantastic people sitting on that panel as well. Diana Davila um, from Mitokaya um, will be there. Mary Sue Milliken in from LA will sit on that panel. Um, obviously has had a very long career and also been a parent. And Eric Williams actually will sit in on that conversation as well. So excited about that. Saturday night is our first uh, official awards ceremony. So on Saturday evening, we will be giving out the media awards. Uh, those are our books, broadcast and journalism awards. Um, there's a Three Dots in a Decade, which is a 10-year anniversary celebration um, of Three Dots in a Dash. Um, that is a publicly ticketed event happening on Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. We are then doing for the second year in a row in partnership with Marquee Development, the Stadium Chef Series, uh, which will be taking place at Wrigley Field 
that is a benefit for the James Beard Foundation. It is unfortunately sold out. Uh, it sold out very, very quickly, but this is um, a really cool event that we will do annually that takes place the reception in the American Airlines 1914 Club. And then everybody walks through the dugout onto the field and there is a large communal dinner down uh, the center of the outfield um, with about 10 different chefs uh, cooking that evening. That's almost too compelling for anybody. <laughs> I mean, uh, going, walking and seeing Wrigley, just walking up the steps to see Wrigley is, is enough by itself. But then seeing the long table and kind of star chefs and the exclusivity of it. I mean, you could probably sell that out five years in advance if you had to. Yeah, I have to tell you, um, I'm not even a huge sports fan, but, you know, <laughs> Wrigley's iconic. And yes. um, when we did this event last year, they kind of walked through the dugout out onto the field and all of the signage around the field said, welcome James Beard Foundation. You know, everyone's just like standing actually on the field taking photos. It was It was pretty surreal. We also have a program called JBF Greens, which is the James Beard Foundation's Foodie Under 40 um, series of events. And so we're hosting a Greens event on Sunday evening in partnership with Frontier. Uh, that is at 6 p.m. on Sunday. It's an award weekend uh, happy hour for our under 40 um, group of folks in the Chicago area. So we're super excited about that. But then we move into Monday. Monday is um, the last day of official award ceremonies. That is the Restaurant and Chef Awards taking place at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, Monday evening at six o'clock. That's where we'll recognize all of the restaurant-related uh, awards, you know, Best New Restaurant, Outstanding Chef, Emerging Chef, Service, Beverage, etc. Um, and then we follow that event. Um, those who have tickets to Lyric um, also then move over to the after-event reception that we do um, at Union Station. Uh, so a short walk or bus ride around the corner. And there is a really phenomenal um, event afterwards that features, you know, 15 to 18 chefs, a number of activations, beverage stations, music. Um, you know, last year it was was quite the party that ended with a Congo line led by Marcus Samuelson. So um, <laughs> we had a blast and I'm, I'm counting on it being a blast again this year. Well, I can only say this. Um, that event is a lot of fun. I was at it last year. I think I was probably in a cab or an Uber by the time the Congo line uh, started. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. Fair. But it is a really warm, energized, tasty event. And the event that happens a couple hours before that at Lyric Opera is also a very warm event. And, you know, the, the, the ceremonies themselves, you know, it's just, I think it's a very inclusive event. And the James Beard Foundation, as you were well aware, has gone through a, a, an evolution where it probably started a little bit more of New York, San Francisco-centric, more fine dining. And then you've, you kind of evolved, I think almost you've evolved slowly then all at once. So tell, tell us a little bit about what the James Beard Foundation stands for and its criteria for the winners, because you're certainly best known for uh, the the Restaurant and Chef Awards. Some call it the Oscars of the food world or the restaurant world. Um, but give us a little um, flavor as to how it's changed and where where it is now. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. The foundation has been on um, a pretty significant evolution. Um, I've actually been with JBF for 16 years, and so I've I've been a part, been fortunate to be a part of that evolution the whole time that I've been here. Um, and I would say for us, it actually, you know, folks feel like 
it's all happened in the last three years that kind of COVID hit and the James Beard Foundation evolved from that. But the reality is um, this work for us started all the way back in 2011, 2012. Um, and the leadership at that time, our former president and the board at that time really recognized that you know, food is food is a really powerful piece of our lives um, and chefs um, and culinary leaders have evolved, right? I mean, this was an industry where chefs used to be expected to stay behind the kitchen door, right? Like fancy restaurants, but you never knew who the chef was. They weren't walking the dining room and shaking hands. You know, they certainly weren't celebrities on television. And the evolution of, of uh, the independent restaurant industry and chefs and culinary leaders, um, you know, has been significant over the last 30 years. And so when we started this conversation in 2011, it was about, you know, we, we need to evolve as the industry evolves um, and to support an industry that's, you know, moving forward. And one of the things that we recognized is that, you know, chefs and other culinary leaders um, all the way back in 2011 had developed a very different platform than they had ever had before. You know, people were paying attention to what chefs said. Right, people were following their favorite chefs. They were flying across the country to go to their restaurants. Right, they were chefs had become, you know, the new rock stars, influencers, whatever, whatever language you want to use. And so we recognized an opportunity to help chefs understand how to better leverage that platform, influence, and voice to create a better food world. I think one of the things that we know about the hospitality industry is that this industry wears their heart on the sleeve. Um, they are always the first ones to step up to want to help others. They are all the first one, always the first ones, you know, on the front line. We saw it during COVID. People needed food. Restaurants were, you know, suffering, but they were still the first people there to feed first responders, to take care of their own staff, to provide food for those in need. So, we created a program all the way back in 2012 called the Chef Bootcamp for Policy and Change. That was really the start of this evolution. Um, and this work in more kind of the impact uh, space, if you will, trying to help chefs how, understand how to leverage that platform, that voice um, to create a better food world. We've done a lot of things since then. We launched our women's leadership programs, um, which have been around for about six years. Um, we've started to get into a lot of environmental sustainability work, came out with our food-based book and our food-based curriculum for culinary school instructors, launched the Smart Catch program to chefs help um, help chefs understand their seafood sourcing. So there's been this whole body of um, what I would call kind of more, you know, traditional nonprofit work. People don't always realize that we are a nonprofit. Uh, we are a 501c3 and we um, exist to help create a better food world and to lead the industry forward. And so this work has been um, underway. And then actually in 2018, uh, after codifying those programs as our impact programs in 2018, um, we refined our kind of public mantra, and that's when we introduced um, this idea of the James Beard Foundation is all about good food for good. And the idea that, you know, our work is all about operating at the intersection of where good food, so gastronomy, the enjoyment of food, what we experience around the table together, where that intersects with the for good or the, the creation of a better food world, right? And that's one um, where that is more accessible, uh, more sustainable, more equitable, and we think one where the industry is one where all people have an opportunity to thrive, right? People at every step of the supply chain, from you know the farmers to the dishwashers to the executive chef, this is an inclusive, supportive, um, flourishing culture. 
so that was the path that we were on. And then obviously COVID, you know, disrupted everything for everyone, uh, including the James Beard Foundation. And so we had an opportunity uh, in 2021 to um, take a pause from the awards and to go through a full audit of the James Beard Awards process, something we'd never had the opportunity, of course, to do before, because it's just this you know, beast that keeps going. And to really look at the entirety of the process through the lens of how do we help create a more equitable, inclusive awards process that's more reflective of our mission and the direction that we're going as an organization. And so that included looking at everything from, you know, how do people get nominated? Are there fees to enter? Is that a barrier to entry? You know, who has a voice at the table in terms of nominations and voting? Where are there inequities in the system that used to exist? Biases, for example, or things that might advantage people in, you know, dense cities versus people who are in rural locations, you know, all of those factors, as well as, you know, what are the awards categories? Are they the right categories for where our industry is at today? That was a very long, arduous process. And then piecing back together a kind of reconstructed process to reflect um, the direction that we wanted to go and, and really to make systemic change, right? Not to manipulate the outcome, but actually to change the process and then let the process produce whatever outcome it's going to produce. We came back last year with the James Beard Awards for the first year after that audit and new process um, with the process running in its first year. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is an evolution, not a destination as far as I'm concerned. But to see the um, kind of evolution of who ended up on the semifinalist list, right? And the what felt like the true broad diversity of what food and beverage in this country is actually represented on that list. You know, there was geographic diversity, there was racial diversity, gender diversity, establishment type diversity, everything from the more casual food truck to, you know, the seven course tasting menu. It's now really more what food in America looks like versus, let's say, if you go back several years, what fine dining looks like in America. And with that, though, I, you know, I, I'm really glad you're talking about kind of how it's evolving, how you make decisions and, and the thoughtfulness that you went into it. Because, you know, it used to be when it was a fairly narrow, now, now you're just exposing also the awards and people around the country. I mean, I know a Native American restaurant won last year. I mean, you know, people that's not on generally people's radars until you put it there. But now you've got restaurants from Maine to California and every type of restaurant. It must be fairly daunting to try to narrow down who you're going to put on the semifinalists and and eventually the finalists list because there's just so many. Yeah, I mean, we we live in a very large country uh, and we are also, you know, very fortunate to have a thriving restaurant culture in this country. Um, There's something like 17 million people that work in this industry across the United States. And so when you think about the daunting task of trying to source and recognize and narrow down, it it is a massive undertaking. And, you know, there is no way that everybody that deserves to be recognized could could truly be recognized. Um, You know, this is where we rely on an amazing network of volunteers that really do this arduous work every year. You know, that nobody that is an employee of the James Beard Foundation actually participates in that process of nominating, vetting, judging, making decisions. We administer the process. 
but it is truly this very committed um, group of volunteers that serve as committee members, uh, subcommittee members, or judges that take on this task all the way from October until you know May, um, and put in a really huge amount of time and expertise to help see this process through. And so, you know, there's a number of steps there in terms of call for nominations or recommendations, uh, committee vetting, getting to semifinalists, and then national judging and tasting and voting. You know, there's a there's a number of steps um, in this process that is what, you know, eventually narrows it down to nominees and then a winner. You know, I'm actually delighted that we don't get to participate and don't have a hand in that because I think it's incredibly challenging. It's great to be a volunteer, especially when you get to go out and eat in lots of places around. So, so uh, you know, people are like, where do I sign up for that? Let's talk Chicago for a second. Do you know where you're eating this weekend? And do you have some favorites? And I'm not going to ask you to, like, pick your favorite child. But do you have some favorites that you've eaten in the past or ones that you're going to try? I know. So this is such a funny question because you would assume I'm coming to Chicago for, you know, four nights the way this weekend plays out, I don't actually ever have time to get into an actual restaurant for just a a la carte menu. And that is because I will be in many, many restaurants over the course of the weekend, but given the 40 events and parties, many of which are happening in in restaurants, I will, I will be in many restaurants, but not having a kind of typical, you know, seated experience. But you probably say to each chef you meet here, oh, I can't wait to go back to your actual restaurant. But I but I really can't. I mean, I what I will say is that Chicago is a great food town. It is a really amazing restaurant town. And because we hold the awards there and have such great partners at Chew Chicago and the Illinois Restaurant Association, we do spend a lot of time in Chicago. And I, you know, I hesitate to call out anybody specifically because there are so many favorites. But uh, I will tell you, I am really excited. I am going to have a lot of Chicago food because at the media awards on Saturday, it is all local Chicago restaurants that are cooking uh, at that after reception. So we've got Tai Deng from Haisu, Diana Davila from Mitukaya, Joe Flam from Rosemary, Carlos Gaitan from Suko, Gina Kwam and Tim Flores for Kasama will be there, Carrie Nahabedian, Darnell Reed, and Dominique Leach are all cooking on Saturday night at the media awards. So I'm gonna dodge your question and say, I'm going to get a really great taste of Chicago uh, after the media <laughs> awards uh, during the reception on Saturday night and then have to make it to all of their restaurants, some of which I've been to, but some I haven't uh, on a future trip. Okay. I say well played. Well played. <laughs> that's what, that's it's what like I, asking someone to choose your favorite child, right? Said, but, I'm like normally, I normally, I wouldn't, you know, but it's, it's a little easier because you're based in New York to ask about Chicago restaurants than like, because then people are kind of like, ah. But let's talk Chicago for a second. You know, this is a question I could ask the Illinois Restaurant Association to choose Chicago folks. But it helps put Chicago on the world-class city restaurant map for sure, right? You guys have not only decided. It's not like in the past you've rotated. You've been here for quite some time. Do you know what the impact is on Chicago um, in, in that area? I don't know that I can quantify it specifically. It's a great question and one I think maybe we would want to ask to Chicago uh, or the Illinois Restaurant Association. I would say one of the decisions to come to Chicago was based on the fact that at the time, Chicago was one of the winningest cities in the James Beard Awards. And so when we contemplated moving the awards to Chicago, it, it made sense because even at that time when the awards were in New York, 
Chicago in terms of the number of awards that had been bestowed on you know, restaurants from the city made it one of the winningest cities in the James Beard Awards in the history of the James Beard Awards. And so it made a lot of sense. I think that the reality is Chicago and the food scene in Chicago was already on the map, which is why we had a lot of uh, confidence in coming to Chicago. I do think bringing the awards to Chicago means that thousands of people come into Chicago every year for the awards. And increasingly, since we've been in Chicago, the awards have grown from kind of a one night only ceremony to being an entire weekend of food. Um, and I kind of jokingly have been calling it the Super Bowl weekend of food um, because with all of these ancillary events and other things happening around the city, it really feels like that's what it's turning into. And I think that both economically is great for the city of Chicago, right? A lot of people traveling into town, eating out in the restaurant, supporting the local food scene. Um, but it is also great just from a visibility and awareness standpoint. You've got chefs and restaurateurs and mixologists and wine professionals from all over the country flying in to be a part of the awards weekend. And while they're there, eating out, right? Hopping into every restaurant, going to all these parties, checking, oh, I heard this about this in the West Loop and this on Gold Coast and, you know, making their way around the city. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm sure it could be quantified in some metric um, that we can think about, but um, I think that kind of platform, that visibility, and to have the national food and beverage scene and industry kind of experience Chicago in that way on an annual basis is, you know, is a great thing. Absolutely. And so there's an excitement. And of course, we're exposing lots of people from all over the country because you are so widespread now to Chicago and, the, and and even just the word of mouth aspect of that. And speaking of that, is there what is the future of Chicago and the James Beard Awards? We are committed to being in Chicago through at least 2027. So we've got still a handful of years ahead of us for sure. Uh, and we'll see maybe more after that. Uh, early to say, but really thrilled we will be there through at least 27. Well, I'm going to get my uh, Wrigley tickets for 2026 tomorrow. <laughs> I know I'm not. I but mean, I, I, I will tell you, I know this is a podcast about Chicago, but we are taking the Stadium Chef Series on the road. So ah. we're actually doing Target Field at the end of June, and we're also doing Fenway in September. So, uh, and then we'll hopefully be back to Chicago next year. So, you didn't make it to Chicago, but you really want to dine on a, a ballpark field. There are other opportunities. Target. What is Target? Minneapolis. Is that where Target? Minneapolis. Is? Yeah. Ah, yes, that makes sense. And and real quick, to, just as far as the ceremony itself, you have four co-hosts this year. Is that correct? We do. Yes, yeah, so that's a change. It is a change, and you know, part of the evolution of the Beard Awards has been this recognition and and want to celebrate the fact that restaurants are the output of a team. Right. There's one person's name on the door, yes, but right, the kind of contributions of all. And so this year we felt like it was a kind of fun way to bring that to life by having a team host, right? This kind of like, we're all in this together, right? It's not just me, it's not just this one name. So uh, we've got Andrew Zimmern, Gail Simmons, Esther Choi, and Eric Ajapong co-hosting together who will be kind of passing the baton throughout the ceremony um, to keep us moving, which we're really excited about. I mean, such an amazing, amazing group of talented chefs, hosts, food personalities. Um, I'm really excited to see them on the stage together on Monday. Yeah. And I will say this, just being there, I, I, I was kind of expect. you know, we've all been to a certain amount of, you know, nonprofit events and sometimes they're 
warm and tug at your heartstrings. And sometimes they do that and they're boring. <laughs> last year's event was not boring. So, and I, I applaud you guys on it to saying like pacing just at the event itself is like really important. And so I, I really enjoyed it last year and I'm sure it's been even more lively this year. I have to say, I think that's probably the nicest thing you could have said to us because the <laughs> amount of time we spend on, there's a lot of stuff to get done at that ceremony. And a lot of hard work from our production team goes into the pace, like how to structure it to try to keep it moving because it's a lot of business to get through, but um, you know, it does end up being three hours. It just does. And so how do you, how do you keep it entertaining and keep it moving along? Oh, well, like I said, I, I don't, I would, just so you know, uh, Chris, I, I, I would have said nothing if I didn't have a good time. <laughs> but so, <laughs> okay, great. I just would have like passed it by. So, but it was really well done. And, and so I, I think it's super important that uh, the event itself, people are really enjoying and like, and, and they clearly were. Anyway, Chris Moon, president and COO at the James Beard Foundation. It's so good to, to see you, to talk to you and have a great time in Chicago this upcoming week and uh, good luck on the awards. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Hope we see you this weekend. Crane's food and restaurant reporter, Ali Moradi joins me now. And we're going to talk a little bit about restaurant pop-ups in Chicago. Hey, Ali. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, there's some new ones. There's been some ones in the past. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. So I think we should start out with sort of the blockbuster Barbie pop-up that's coming this summer. It opens June 7th and it's not sold out yet, but I'm told if you want to still go, you got to get your ticket now and you got to be okay going on a weeknight because it's very popular. So, you know, there's this movie coming out this summer with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, and um, it's just drumming up a lot of interest in Barbie. You know, everyone's saying it's going to be the summer of Barbie. So this pop-up, there's a company called Bucket Listers that got its start in Chicago, and they're the ones running the pop-up. They've partnered with Mattel to do it. And, um, you know, I think it's really interesting sort of the business structure behind these pop-up restaurants because obviously they're hugely popular. It's it's a, an experience, a fun experience for kids, for adults. They told me there's going to be a roller rink. It's going to be giving a lot of like, you know, Malibu, Barbie, 1970s kind of vibes. The one in New York recently opened and there's like a life-size Barbie box that you can get in and take your picture. So super Instagrammable, that sort of thing. You buy one ticket to go. It includes an entree and a side, and then there are cocktails and desserts you can buy separately. And then you get the whole experience with it. So, you know, I've talked to a couple experts about these pop-ups and why companies would do them instead of just opening an actual restaurant, right? And it seems like, you know, what one expert told me is that there's a lot of upsides and not a lot of downsides. You know, the, the CEO and founder of Bucket Listers called it like a FOMO factor because it's only around for the summer. So if you're going to go, you got to go, that sort of thing. This company, Bucket Listers, they're doing a Golden Girls pop-up right now too. And it's a similar situation, partnering with Disney on it. What they do is pay a licensing fee to their partners. And then the partner basically says, okay, yes, we approve this Golden Girls kitchen set that you built that does portray, you know, our brand well, that sort of thing. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. We're seeing a lot of these um, coming to Chicago. And I think we've seen, you know, more since the pandemic as well. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. And, and I don't know if Chicago is like the home of the pop-up or not, but, you know, I, it, 
I don't know what people are expecting to eat when they go there. I can understand the Instagramable and the kind of the FOMO thing, but I, I, I'm guessing Barbie never ate that much, right? So it's not, you're not going, you know, to kind of like, oh, I'm going for a gourmet meal. I don't know about Ken, uh, but I'm, you know, Barbie's super, super thin. Um, so, you know, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what's, what's on the menu at the Barbie pop-up. The Golden Girls, I can see a little bit more substantial, perhaps, perhaps. Yes, yes. Lasagna, cheesecake, I'm told, are big ones there. The Barbie one, apparently, it's... There you go. They tried to create, apparently, a menu that would be something that she would have created. So I guess there's salads, the club sandwich, um, but then there's, like, funfetti pancakes and stuff, too, you know, so... There were more pop-ups, though, in, like, 2021, 2022, and tell me why. Yes, I don't have data on it, but I have seen a lot about this and talked to experts about it. And basically, we're, we're talking just not just restaurant and bar pop-ups, but also retail pop-ups as well. And if you think about the environment in 2021 and 2022, you know, we're coming off of the pandemic. It's still in it in, in a lot of ways. And people were scared to take out leases, you know, maybe... They wanted to test. It was just really risky to do that, right? Um, so they would just open up a store for like a month in, in a, an empty storefront. And that was the other thing too. There were a lot more empty storefronts because of the businesses that had closed during the pandemic. So now it's sort of similar with restaurants and bars, right? A lot of them use these pop-ups as sort of marketing stunts to drum up publicity, get people interested. You know, Bucket Listers, for example, they're a company that, like I said, got their start in Chicago, but largely they're kind of a, an online marketplace for finding things to do. You know, you can go on there and buy concert tickets or, you know, boat tours or whatever it may be. So, you know, the CEO and founder was telling me that they do something that's big and loud, like a Barbie pop-up, and you've got people downloading their app and then they start using, you know, their services in other ways. So mm. he said for them, it's sort of like, Game of Thrones was for HBO or something, you know, Stranger Things was for Netflix, right? Like you're going to pay for the Netflix subscription to watch Stranger Things. So he said for them, you know, you you download their app so you can go to this experience and then you keep using their services. So for them, it does a lot of that. And you have a lot of other pop-ups too that maybe aren't so big and loud and pop culture-y. You know, for example, the Dawson is having a pop-up with a, a bar in New York and they're going to be serving drinks from that bar in New York. And it's just sort of a crossover situation where you get people to come in, get them excited. You know, the Willis Tower, there's a restaurant up there that's doing a secret garden pop-up, for example. And that's just like an Instagrammable situation where you can get people to come in and be kind of surrounded by this lush, you know, environment. And people get excited about something new. I think right now we're in this moment where people are peeling back with spending when they go out because of you know, inflation, which is still hitting people pretty hard. And when people go out, maybe they're going out less, but when they go out, they want it to be big, they want it to be exciting, and they want it to be an experience. Maybe they're not going to three or four different places, getting dinner, getting a drink, getting dessert, whatever. They're just going to one place and staying there all evening, and they want it to be really good and exciting. So I think that that is why we're seeing so many of these pop-ups and people really interested in them. I do think it's interesting. I think the Barbie one, first of all, I think this is very creative what they're doing, but I think the Barbie one's interesting because, you know, I guess you can go full circle. You can go out to see the movie if it's good. Uh, and then you can go to the, you know, Barbie pop up if that's your thing. 
And I think it's kind of fun. And as you said, I think there's some buzz around all these things. And so it gives you something to do for the company. Obviously, it's, it's you know, there's, there's a lot of marketing and press uh, that goes along with it. But people are like, oh, let's go to the Barbie. Oh, they're having a Barbie. I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to the Barbie pop-up. But, you know, I can see why a lot of people might. So I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do. You can remain culturally relevant, right? You can look back on the summer, remember when you did all these fun Barbie theme <laughs> things. <laughs> Maybe you can learn to roller skate oh, too. God. I like how you said you can rem- <laughs> you can remain culturally relevant. Does, does that mean if I don't go, I, I I I've lost my cultural relevance? That's what I think. I I know. I think that's what you're saying. Like just I think in just, just under- in the Barbie segment. Oh, okay. In the in the in the in the, in the Mattel world, I, I, I've <laughs> lost. It. Although maybe I maybe Hot Wheels, I'll I'll be able to you know step back in because I think they're coming out with a show. Anyway, Allie, as always, great being with you. And I'll I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our show this week. I want to thank Chris Moon, the president and COO of the James Beard Foundation, and Ali Marotti from Cranes. You can find her work at chicagobusiness.com. Please check our show notes for links to all the places we've talked about. The Dining Table with David Manilow is produced by the great Todd Manley at Cranes Audio Studio. Take a moment now to give us a rating or a review. That's the best way for others to discover our conversations. I'm David Manilow. I hope we can gather around the table again next week.